Marshawn Sager here. Welcome back to The Realignment. The crucial thing here is that there has to be a way to find a balance where you have to be able to simultaneously say the medical system can get things wrong and people on the fringe can get things right. And you have to be always open to that possibility without assuming, without sort of flipping the script, which I think is the mistake that a lot of people in what you might call populist medicine make and say, oh, if the establishment is wrong about this one thing, I'm going to assume that they're wrong about everything, right? Because in fact, you know, the basic, the basic discoveries of modern medicine from antibiotics, which were the main thing that I took, I did a lot of stranger things, but antibiotics were the core of my treatment, to vaccines, um, to, you know, chemotherapy for cancer. Like, there are core things the medical system does right that I think need to be defended and respected, even as you need to recognize all the places where medical consensus can fall right. short. And that's right. a really hard balance to strike. Hello, everyone. Good morning. Happy Thursday. We have another great show for you. We have Ross Douthit back for what I believe is his fourth appearance on The Realignment. If we are going to have you all listen to a guest four different times, given how relatively new the podcast still is, it must mean that we think this person has a lot to say. And what he has to say has to do with his new book, The Deep Places, Memoir of Illness and Recovery. Sagar, what, considering the fact that we've known Ross for a while since we first came to DC, what's this book about? Like, Why does it matter? And why, even if you're not interested in his work at the New York Times, does it have significance for everyone who's listening? Yeah, it's really shocking. I mean, Ross describes his kind of journey from getting a Lyme disease, getting and being diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease, and then just figuring out what the hell to do with it. I didn't know a lot about Lyme disease um, before I encountered Ross and his book. And what he talks about is just about how the medical establishment really doesn't know what to do with it. It leads to a lot of people exploring different cures um, online and message boards. And actually, I was really struck by how much of this can actually be related to COVID and what it's like in order to live with like a debilitating chronic illness and also in an environment where the medical establishment doesn't really know what's going on and people are kind of fending for themselves. So there's a lot here, I think, for everybody. Yeah, what Ross does a particularly good job of is just expressing, hey, here's this disease. It's right. not political whatsoever. So a good way to think about how you should listen to this episode is what are the takeaways given it's not quite clear which angle you are. Another funny thing he mentions in the book that people get a kick out of, he says what's interesting about Lyme disease is it is one of the few areas where the quote-unquote anti-establishment position is that they want access to more pharmaceuticals right. and they want more actual engagement. So it's a kind of inverse of what you'd think from COVID, but that inverse is that what actually makes it useful and interesting. Of course, earlier this year, we had an episode of Ross where he talked about his more realignment centric book, The Decadent Society, an amazing book. It was actually the last episode we recorded on when he came out in hardcover before COVID. So can't shout out his work enough. Before we dive into the episode, want to give a quick shout out to everything you need to check out. We've got A, a bookshop. If you like Ross's work, you can follow the link in the bottom of the show notes to let you support the show, support Ross, and support a local independent bookseller. You can also subscribe to our Substack, which goes out 
on Thursdays in the afternoon Eastern Standard Time. We've dedicated these past few weeks to inviting you all to give us critiques of the show, what we could do, what we do better. Once again, good faith only, and they've been very good faith. We've been really, really excited for that. So we're going to post a couple of those really interesting pushbacks we got, which can help us all put together a better show. So go check out that if you haven't yet. And of course, a huge thank you to our sponsors, Lincoln Network. That is Lincoln Network, not Lincoln Project, for supporting our work. Anything we missed, Sagar? No, I think that is all of it. I think people are going to really enjoy this episode. Let's get to it. Ross Douthit, welcome back to The Realignment. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's great to be back. Sagar and I were discussing this beforehand. This is a slightly different type of episode for us in the sense that we're talking about disease, the medical system, treatment, broader ties to COVID and all the medical debates we're having right now. But at the same time, this is also a personal episode, both because we consider you a friend, but also because the book you've written to the deep places is deeply personal. So let's just start by zooming in at your specific story and circumstances, and then we could work our way outwards towards the more political realignment facing things. But can you just introduce Lyme disease to us? Because Saga's from Texas, I'm from Oregon. When we moved to DC in 2010, we had no thoughts of ticks, Lyme disease, any of those backgrounds. This was just a brand new concept for the two of us when we came to the East Coast. Right. So so Lyme disease is named for these towns in southern Connecticut called Lyme and Old Lyme that are really beautiful little coastal towns on the Long Island Sound, the kind of place you would spend a weekend at a bed and breakfast or go antiquing. And in the 1970s, in the neighborhoods around those towns, a bunch of kids, teenagers, started showing up with what was diagnosed as juvenile arthritis, which is a pretty rare condition where they had, you know, body pain and swelling and pain in their knees, especially. And there was this group of mothers, a couple mothers in particular, who got in touch with uh, people at Yale And a doctor from Yale named Alan Steer came out and did a bunch of research and pretty quickly figured out that this was a disease that people, this was what seemed to him like a novel disease. It had been sort of discovered in Europe previously, Um, but it was a disease that people were getting from ticks, which are extremely common all over the country. Texas, of course, has the Lone Star Tick, famously. Um, But in the Northeast, there's a huge population of what are called deer ticks, which, as the name suggests, live on deer, also chipmunks, dogs, human beings. Um, And and there was this sort of seasonal pattern to the illness where people would get sick in the spring or they'd get sick after spending a lot of time in the woods or outside. And that was sort of the beginning of what gradually became this epidemic, where there are now 500,000 cases, according to the CDC, and that's probably an underestimation of Lyme disease every year. It's concentrated in the Northeast, but it has spread down to the point where, you know, if you guys go hiking in the Shenandoah outside DC, I would be careful. Um, there's a big Midwestern outbreak, um, mostly sort of in the upper Midwest around Minnesota and Wisconsin. And there are now cases on the West coast and Florida and elsewhere. Um, 
But the challenge with Lyme disease is, so it's a bacterial infection. Um, it's, it's in 80% of cases, it's pretty straightforward to treat uh, as long as you catch it early. Um, there is, you know, often there's this bullseye rash around the tick bite, uh, and then people get fevers and joint pain and other symptoms, but you're supposed to take antibiotics. And if you take them for four to six weeks early in the course of the disease, you will probably get better. However, a lot of people don't get better and there's a lot of debate about how many, but it's, you know, let's say it's anywhere from five to 20% of people don't recover quickly with a course of antibiotics. And going all the way back to the early 1980s, the period right after the disease was discovered, there is just this tremendous controversy about what to do about those patients. Because the official, the official view of most medical bodies, not, not all of them, and there's research on this going on at plenty of prominent hospitals and research facilities, but the official view is that there, we don't know why some people stay sick and long-term antibiotic treatment is too risky. So we don't give people long-term antibiotic treatment. And we assume that the disease persists, not because they're still infected, but because their immune system has been triggered in some way. So they now have a kind of autoimmune condition or they have a psychosomatic condition where they think they're still sick, but aren't really, or some combination of the two. And then there is this unofficial sort of you know framework that I say unofficial, but it has organizations behind it. It has whole groups of doctors that say, no, if somebody gets sick, you treat them and they stay sick with the same symptoms. They probably have the same disease and probably need more treatment. And so this is the, these are what are often called Lyme literate doctors who will treat people who are sick for not just weeks, but months and even years, often with complicated combinations of antibiotics and other things in an effort to get them better. And so this population of people with so-called chronic Lyme disease is, you know, numbers in the tens, hundreds of thousands. It's a lot of people. And it has a lot of overlap with other chronic conditions, including now long-haul COVID, where, you know, with a lot of chronic diseases, there are versions of this controversy over, is it real and how do you treat it? It's just with Lyme disease, there's this particularly sharp division and argument between these two warring camps. Hmm. So before we get to that and the analogies to COVID, because they are very apt, just tell us about how you came to discover that you had Lyme disease. How did that happen? Um, how did you find that you yourself were in one of those categories? And what was that like for you? So I got sick um, in the summer of 2015 when my wife and I, who are both from Connecticut, although not from, not from the Lyme area, uh, decided to move back to leave the you know corrupt swamp that is Washington DC in order to raise our kids more in the country uh this was sort of a you know a classic pundit's fantasy i think maybe especially a conservative pundit's mm. fantasy and we actually made it real we we sold our row house we made a lot of money from the sale because the DC real estate market was really hot and we just took that money and we bought the farmhouse we bought we bought the farm <laughs> <laughs> we got the, it had the barn, it had the apple tree, it had the three acres of pasture land. It was literally, the house was sort of on a cliff overlooking this pasture. I think a good life lesson is don't buy a house that's on a 
cliff, like then look, <laughs> could be in an Edgar Allan Poe story. That's that's one one life lesson. But so we did this. And um, and while we were literally in the process of doing it, while we had bought the house, but we're still living in D.C., uh, we're moving in like two months. I had this sort of sequence where first I had a little red mark on my neck that one doctor said was a boil and that it would just go away. It did go away. Then I started getting neck neck pain. Then I started getting headaches. Then I had this night of total collapse where, you know, I had chest pain. I had diarrhea. I had tingling in my extremities. I went to the emergency room. This was in June of that summer. And over the next two months, our last two months in DC, I basically was sick all the time. I went to 10 to 12 different doctors. I did tons of tests. Nobody could figure out what was wrong. I kept, I had worse and worse phantom heart attacks. So I kept going to the emergency room. I lost 40 pounds. I slept, was sleeping about an hour or two a night. So it was a sort of total, total breakdown, total wow. collapse. And it was only when we dragged ourselves somehow to our now slightly horrifying dream house in Connecticut that I started seeing doctors who said, oh, you know, we see a lot of cases like this. The blood tests for Lyme disease are crap. Um, they pick up 50% of cases. The fact that your blood tests were negative doesn't mean anything. If you have these kind of symptoms, you probably have Lyme. And in fact, my blood tests, this is a good example of sort of the, the complexities of medical science. So in order to have a have a CDC approved positive test for Lyme disease, you need five bands to basically appear or activate to show the presence of antibodies in your blood. And I would have tests where three bands would activate or four bands <laughs> would activate, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm never meeting the CDC threshold, but combined with combined with my obvious symptoms and this trajectory um, where I quite probably got bit by a tick literally while we were doing the inspection on the house, um, doctors said, well, look, let's treat you for, for Lyme disease. And so they treated me. I stabilized. I stopped collapsing. I started sleeping more. The phantom heart attacks went away, but the pain, the pain didn't. And so over the course of that fall, I sort of transitioned from someone with a mysterious, a totally mysterious illness to someone with a case of this, maybe it doesn't exist disease called chronic Lyme, where you are sick and can't figure out how to get better. Hmm. I want to go back to the point you made about Lyme disease spreading because I want this to be as much of a news you can use episode, because to be entirely honest with you or honest with the audience, we've, you know, I knew about the fact that you were sick years ago. Like we first actually met you during this period. And ever since we got to know you during this period, seeing the weight loss, seeing like the, the results of these circumstances, I've really been terrified of those public spaces so when we go on a hike in the Shenandoah, like you said, so why why are why is the population of ticks with why is this spreading across the country? Because you do you do it interesting in the book, like historical articulation of how from the 1700s and the 1800s there's something with farming, forest clearings. It'd be great to hear that here. Sure, <clears throat> and and then we can get to the. The, the crazy stuff too, right? But the, the, so the basic theory is this, that Lyme disease existed in some form on both sides of the Atlantic for long periods of time. They literally found the Lyme spirochete in, you know, one of those ice men 
that were defrosted from 50,000 years ago in the Swiss Alps. So some version of this has been around a long time. Um, but what people think happened is basically when settlers moved into New England, they cleared land to such an extent that they basically drove, they, they, they dramatically shrunk the potential habitat for deer and ticks and created this sort of farmscape where you weren't actually that likely to encounter this illness and get infected. Then people abandon the farms of New England because the soil is rocky and unpleasant for farming, right? So that's why if you drive around New England, you see all of these picturesque stone walls in woods. And those used to be the stone walls separating fields, but the fields have been abandoned. People moved west to better land and the woods came back. Then step three is the suburbs. So instead of people clearing the woods, they move into the woods and build themselves little houses with woods around them. And that's the point at which the disease sort of explodes because suddenly you have all of these human beings in close contact with deer and chipmunks and mice and all these populations in a way that they wouldn't have been in either 1880 or 1780. And that's why the, the first cases are in the 70s, but presumably there were really actually a bunch of cases in the 60s that weren't recognized. Um, so suburbanization creates the, the first condition and then climate change also has an effect. So you have, um, among other things, ticks don't like the winter. So colder winters kill a lot of ticks, keep tick populations lower, warm, wet winters, ticks just stay alive through them. So as temperatures have increased modestly or all over, but in New England, you, you get more ticks um, and more, more spread. So those are sort of that combination, changing temperatures with climate and prior to that suburbanization, that's a pretty good basic explanation for where Lyme disease comes from. And you have sort of two strains of it. I mean, there are actually more than two, but to simplify, there's a Midwestern strain and a New England strain that have now both spread around the country a bit. And you said you'd take us to the crazy part. So What's so the, the crazy, crazy so here? the weird, right. Well, sometimes in these interviews, you get to this at the end, but we can, this is a, this is a heterodox podcast, you know, where, where we, we, we lead, we lead, lead with the, the weirdness. So the weird thing about Lyme disease, right. Is that if you, you know, if you draw a map, if you chart its spread in the Northeast um, from these initial cases, and you put the epicenter somewhere around the towns, the, the the towns on the Connecticut shore where the first cases are discovered. You know, it's not actually a bullseye because you have the Atlantic Ocean, right? So it's like half a bullseye, right? So it's like a semicircle spreading from the center. And, you know, the center is these towns, and it's also it's also sort of the middle of the Long Island Sound, which for those who don't know the Northeast is a pretty narrow body of water running in between Long Island and Connecticut and Rhode Island. And right there in the Long Island Sound, not that far from where the first case is discovered is, you know, a federal biowarfare laboratory. <laughs> it's called called Plum Island, um, which, you know, growing up in Connecticut, I, I had no idea that there was a biowarfare laboratory sitting there in this, you know, this sort of one of the most bourgeois areas of the country. And you can literally take the ferry from the North Fork of Long Island to Southern Connecticut and go past Plum Island. And parts of it are still open. There are sort of abandoned areas, but parts of it are still running. Um, so that's a weird coincidence. And it's not, 
a lot of people have have sort of explored this coincidence, shall we say? And I'm I want to stress here, as I stress in the book, that there's no smoking gun um, for the Lyme lab leak hypothesis, and clearly the disease itself did not originate in a laboratory because we know that there were that there you know the bacteria goes back tens of thousands of years and we know there's this midwestern version that definitely didn't originate in the laboratory and we don't have any proof that the laboratory did research on deer ticks or the lyme bacteria specifically however the laboratory did do research on tick-borne illness it did have some pretty lax safety protocols. Um, it is on a migratory bird route. So, you know, you just have to say that that's a little weird. And you could certainly imagine a scenario where the lab didn't invent the Lyme bacteria, but created a slightly more virulent version of it that explains why this part of New England was the place where it really, really took off. Um, and, you know, in the age of the Wuhan lab leak hypothesis, um, my view is that it's important to state the existence of this possibility because strange things have a way of turning out to be true. Wow. You're, yeah, that's a, an absolute mind blower. And I think that um, a lot of people will take away from it. It's interesting, you know, we've been talking recently about gain of function and all of that. And I was like, at this point, we know enough to say whether it came from the lab or not, like there should be questions around it and about safety. And so that just reminds me again of there's a lot of this stuff that isn't allowed in the public domain, but which very much should be um, and up for debate. I do want to highlight one thing, though, which is that you talked about how, and this is very true, particularly these days here in Washington, a lot of conservative pundits have the dream of return. There's like a meme of like, we must return to with a, with the a farmland, right. to the to live the, you know, the, the what is it like the, the, the pastoral life of the of the rural and have like 15 different children and form like a homeschool conclave amongst the other Absolutely. Yes. That is nearby. So you actually did it. Not necessarily the homeschool um part, but we you, were we were definitely not homeschooling. You um, you did this, Ross, and uh it didn't go so well for what you did what what you write about in the book. Tell us about the lessons from that. Well so the 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 funny thing, right, is that in certain ways the pundit most associated with that idea is uh, my friend Rod Dreher, who yes. you know, famously wrote The Benedict Option, which is not just about moving to the country per se, but certainly has that vibe, but also went and moved to his hometown himself, St. Francisville, Louisiana, and ended up writing, you know, one, but then two books about how disastrous a move that was for him. And in his case, it was more an emotional toll than physical toll, but he also has a chronic illness. Um, so that makes two of us now, right? Two prominent conservative pundits who have <laughs> attempted to return and it's gone badly. And if if you believe that the Almighty, you know, offers <laughs> offers lessons to, to his children, perhaps there's a lesson here for for the romantically inclined conservative. But but yeah, I mean the 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 truth of the matter is, you know, you don't want to be like I, I have no idea what this return would have been like had I not gotten sick. 
And mm-hmm. obviously, many, many people live in the country very happily without getting Lyme disease, or they get it and deal with it very quickly. And I, and I want to stress too, since you guys are, since you are expressing a sort of terror of um, of the tick, that I, th- I do think terror is justified. At the same time, like if you are very aware of the possibility of Lyme disease as a serious thing, if you check yourself for ticks and immediately take a strong course of antibiotics. If you get bitten, your odds of ending up like I did are quite low. So I just, as a public service announcement mm. for people who do live in the country, I want to- No misinformation I wanna, here. I want to, no misinformation here. I want to stress, <laughs> I want to stress that. But so, but for us, it was, um, you know, I said Edgar Allan Poe earlier, it's, it says it was a Stephen King kind of scenario where we had this house, we had this land, we had, you know, a lot of the sort of things that can go wrong when city slickers moved to the country went wrong or not even that disastrously wrong, but just, you know, there were lots of problems around the house, a lot of things that needed to be fixed. You know, you would have someone come out to, you know, look at one thing on the property and they would say, oh, that stone wall is about to go or, the, you know, that tree needs to come down, right? I mean, to, to effectively manage even wasn't a huge piece of property, but three and a half acres with a bunch of outbuildings takes a lot of work. And it's possible that I would have been capable of that. And we would be having a totally different conversation. If I wasn't sick, I would have written, you know, the sort of Wendell Berry back to the land book and, you know, be celebrated as sort of the ultimate crunchy conservative. But in the event, um, you know, we had my father helping. He lived nearby. He was very handy. He would do work. I would do some work. I would like dig out a pit for the curtain drain that ran along the house. But basically, it ended up being a sort of totally haunted experience for us where there would be, you know, insects crawling out of the walls of the house. These huge cicada killer wasps would make nests in the patio and buzz around our kids. We had a pool and we were, we had little kids. We were terrified. We never opened the pool. We lived there for two years and (laughs) never, never opened the pool. And then, you know, I had this fantasy, right? Of like, oh, my kids will run in the fields and they'll climb over the stone walls. And my son will, you know, have his toy gun and reenact the revolutionary war. And instead we were like, don't go in the field. (laughs) Don't touch the stone walls. And you learn very quickly Those too. Chipmunks like, are rabid. And the chipmunks are in there, and 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 there are all these things. Like once you get sick and you tell people you're sick, it's like a secret handshake, and everyone yeah. in the area is like, "Oh, well, yeah, my son was sick for four years with this, or my daughter had to drop out of college, or and it really had a sort of, you know, uh, the vibe of like midsummer, right? right? Where you're wow. like you're like in this bucolic pastoral place and people are like oh yeah and we have to sacrifice one out of 20 people to the ticks <laughs> every <laughs> every year to keep the harvest coming right? like, it's like oh okay well uh, sorry i didn't didn't know i was going to be a human sacrifice so so yeah it was it was a um there's there's a reason stephen king is from new england it's not just the not just the ticks but there is a sort of like you know lovecraftian chthonic thing going on somewhere beneath the the frozen soil of new england that manifests itself through lyme disease in this in this particular way where you know yeah there's a lot of dark there's a lot of dark in nature you know once again what i love about the book is 
you're articulating your personal story. And I say articulating because I listened to the audiobook. Ross did a great job of doing that. So anyone who's an audible listener, go check it out there. But I found myself thinking, you don't beat the listener over the head with this. The, 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 the ties to these broader societal conversations we're having around COVID. And I think this is a useful avenue to go around because Lyme is very controversial, obviously within the medical community and within the community of people who have it, but I don't think there's a quite clear culture war angle that rots people's brains, therefore preventing any type of productive conversation. So I'd love for you just to talk about these ideas within that context. So for example, just you talk in the book a lot around a lot about the medical establishment. Um, and what the medical establishment holds to be true, and what communities of people who are either more independent or doing their own research are coming to. Can you just talk about like that idea uh, of a medical establishment in the way that also relates to a broad conversation debate we're having around COVID? Yeah, I mean, the, the medical establishment in the United States is a highly bureaucratized system that is designed to forge bulletproof consensus um, to make sure not to do harm, right? The, you know, the sort of first do no harm mantra of, of medicine was not invented by the American medical establishment. It goes back a very long way for, for good reasons. Um, so not to overdiagnose, not to overtreat, and to only treat when you are sure about what's going on. Um, and also to have, you know, sort of methods and structures that tend to be self-reinforcing where the CDC issues a set of guidelines on a disease, which then inevitably shapes the kind of research funding that the disease gets, which shapes what insurance companies are willing to pay to treat. So there's a whole, there are all these ways in which different parts of the system interact and interlock with each other to sort of reinforce consensus. And, uh, you know, in certain ways, that's that that's good in the sense that it does have a kind of protective aspect where it, you know, it limits the reach of quackery. And, you know, quackery is a fundamental part of um, the history, the history of medicine. Right. You know, there's always people peddling snake oil. There's always people promising miracle cures. And the American medical system is designed at a sort of fundamental level to keep those people out and steer patients away from those people and towards things that we can know for certain. The problem is that there are a lot of zones where sicknesses clearly exist, problems clearly exist, and it's hard to achieve a le the level of certainty that the system as a whole expects and requires to function. And you could see this palpably with COVID, right? Because COVID was a novel disease. No one had ever, I mean, people had studied coronaviruses, but no one had a good handle initially on what, you know, how did it spread? How fast does it spread? What is the death rate? Um, what are the best therapeutic treatments? Should you mask? Should you not mask? And there was this palpable desire, I think, among people who are sort of conditioned to respect scientific authority to say, well, we just need to trust the science and do whatever the scientists say we should do. 
But in fact, even setting aside the questions that are policy questions, not scientific questions, just on the medical scientific questions, like should you put people on ventilators, right? We put tons of people on ventilators at the, in the early days of COVID. It's not clear that that was a good idea, but maybe it was, you know, it was a totally understandable idea at the moment. I, I'm not, I'm not like sort of assigning blame for that decision, but it's just an example of how when you're dealing with something you don't fully understand, you're essentially even official science just ends up like saying, well, let's try this. And everyone tries this. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't and so on. Right. So that's, that's sort of the COVID case study. A new disease sort of makes it clear that there are limits to this kind of system of knowledge. And you have to have an openness to experimentation and a sense that you might get things really wrong and have to course correct. Then with chronic illnesses, the, the less under, well understood ones, that's just true all the time, right? Like if you have chronic fatigue syndrome or if you get diagnosed with fibromyalgia, right? Like, which is just a term that describes symptoms. It doesn't yeah. tell you what's actually wrong with you. Um, or now if you have long haul COVID, or in my case, if you think you have chronic Lyme disease, there's just no sort of best practices that you can go to. And in that situation, the, the, the establishment view that like the most important thing is not to overdiagnose and not to overtreat, it just throws people into sort of a hopeless situation where they're desperately sick and chronically ill people can be, I was, I was desperately sick. People can get desperately sick in ways that sort of the idea of chronic illness is like, oh, I have some twinges here and there and I feel a little tired. Like, no, that's that's not what this is usually like. So you're desperately sick and doctors will say, well, I don't know how to treat you and I don't want to do any harm. So I'm just going to leave you alone and hope you get better. Um, and at that point, you basically you have to step outside the mainstream to try and save your own life. And that's fraught. And there's a lot of strange ideas and potentially exploitative people operating on the fringe. But there are also a lot of people who have ended up on the fringe precisely because they are willing to try things outside the consensus that um, end up actually really helping people. And in my case, that was, you know, I, I followed the consensus approach to Lyme disease for a while and I didn't get better. And then I followed the outside the consensus approach. And to oversimplify a little, I began to actually get better, hmm. which, you know, in the end, that's the only way <laughs> as a patient that you can prove the truth or falsehood of either approach. You try them and you see which one works. So do you have a lot of sympathy right now for a lot of people who are either both in the long haul COVID? I'll be honest, I've been pretty skeptical of long haul COVID um, for a variety of reasons, but when you see um, a lot of people who are forming, you know, communities online and saying, oh, well, this is an alternative possibly to vaccination or, you know, I don't trust this particular thing or women all coming together and saying, hey, we're having like weird menstrual symptoms um, from COVID and more and then trying to come up with different uh, different treatments. Like, how do you see that? Um, in the COVID context, given your own experience, having gone through these non-traditional networks and uh, and having gotten better yourself, like how how do you view the current iteration of that, given that it has such a cultural war transposed on top of it? Yeah, so I I mean I just I have a general sympathy for anyone who feels like the medical system has let them down in some way and is skeptical of its pronouncements as a result. Um, you know, you, the, the 
the crucial thing here is that there has to be a way to find a balance where you have to be able to simultaneously say the medical system can get things wrong and people on the fringe can get things right. And you have to be always open to that possibility without assuming, without sort of flipping the script, which I think is the mistake that a lot of people in what you might call populist medicine make and say, oh, if the establishment is wrong about this one thing, I'm going to assume that they're wrong about everything, right? Because in fact, you know, the basic, the basic discoveries of modern medicine from antibiotics, which were the main thing that I took, I did a lot of stranger things, but antibiotics were the core of my treatment to vaccines, um, to, you know, chemotherapy for cancer. Like there are core things the medical system does right that I think need to be defended and respected, even as you need to recognize all the places where medical consensus can fall short. And that's a really hard balance to strike. And I'm sure I don't strike it perfectly successfully. I feel like I see a lot of people, though, who sort of just fall off to one side or another, where it's like, okay, long COVID, you know, long COVID doesn't exist, or, um, you know, or, uh, you know, the women who are complaining about menstrual problems are, you know, just, you know, it's just like sort of a normal, a normal group of menstrual problems that are being blamed on COVID, right? Like that, there's that impulse. And then the opposite impulse is, you know, the, they're, they're, they're hiding all the truth about the vaccines. And in fact, tons of people are dying from them and they're covering it up, right? Like somewhere between those two impulses, I think yes. is where, is where you, you want to end up. But look, I mean, the, the reality is that the human body is very strange and very individual, like what you see in chronic illness is that there are sort of general things that people recommend, but then every person's path back to health tends to be slightly different. And I'm sh- that is inevitably true with something like COVID too, right? Like COVID has a sort of core presentation that we understand pretty well, where it affects the lungs, right? And it, you know, th- this sort of shortness of breath, that like basic initial presentation is well understood. And then what happens after that is just not well understood. And there's lots of different presentations of the disease. And this is true of a lot of illnesses as as well. I think once you actually dig into this, you realize sort of how, um, you know, how complex even diseases that you think that we understand pretty well actually are. And for people who have symptoms that don't, you know, that don't sort of fit with the basic, the basic pattern, you know, it's just really, it's really hard, but the symptoms are in most cases, you know, look, I mean, when you go through like something like this, my bias is towards believing in the reality of people's medical problems. And that, that bias can be overstated. Like, you know, hypochondria is real. Psychosomatic problems are real. Munchausen syndrome is real. Like people think they're sick when they're not, that definitely does happen. I just think once you've been through something yourself, I think it happens less than people who haven't been chronically ill tend to assume. Ross, I want you to help me work through something when it comes to balancing the, let's say, populist medicine with establishment medicine bit. I, I instantly started thinking about social media platforms and information slash disinformation around medical treatments because, and Sagar, I think you're here with me, contradicting me if that's not true, but we're in the slightly 
unpopularly centrist position where we get annoyed when Don Lemon dunks on Joe Rogan over the horse dewormer thing. At the same time, I also think that the banning on Facebook and Twitter of conversations on Wuhan Lab Leak was completely unproductive, especially given the switch. But on the other hand, I think that social media platforms, given their algorithms, need to actually be hyper aware of how information is spread and amplified on their platforms, aka nothing quite productive can come from those three positions I just outlined. So how do you think anyone who's hosting, amplifying, et cetera, should think about just just balancing these these always contradictory you're not going to have a perfectly articulate answer you could give before congress bits here i mean the social media platform problem is i i you know i i tend to just think that sort of the facebook model as a model is bad and that platforms should just have more more editorial responsibility for the material that circulates on them and in that sense you know i'm a uh yeah i'm i'm i mean can i, I, I don't can, I, can I, I interrupt I, real quick ross yeah because what's interesting though is that and i want people to be very precise when they hear that language you're conservative but what you just said sounds like something that amy klobuchar would want what when because you see people on democrats in the house and senate saying facebook and mark zuckerberg don't take enough responsibility for their platforms. right and so so i, I want to get at the tension so i yeah i mean i tend to be so i i feel like there is this liberal assumption current liberal assumption that and you see this in the facebook whistleblower stuff right where, where this is sort of her view that basically the social media platforms are fine they just need more sort of overt sifting and regulation of misinformation, um, meaning they need censors, basically. And I'm more in the camp, and maybe, you know, maybe these these fundamentally overlap, but I'm more in the camp that, you know, Section 230 <laughs> is actually is actually the problem. And it's not that Facebook should have you know, well, it, it maybe it is that Facebook should have these censors, but the way they, they should be effectively recognized as the equivalent of the New York Times, right? That and that that you know, and the, the actual goal of recognizing them that way would be to weaken them dramatically. So let me let me just try, I again, I'm not sure that the policy would actually play out this way, but just just to take an example from my personal experience, right? So I spent a lot of time on the internet reading about chronic illness. <laughs> I wish you'd paused. I spent a lot of time on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, but a I mean, I, you know, I was, there's, you know, the sort of idea of like, do your own research, right? It's sort of a, you know, a joke now, right? The, the sort of, that's what the cranks and conspiracy theorists say, but I did my own research. I really mm -hmm. did. And the places that had the most helpful information often were discrete communities of people who were sick. So message boards, sort of these sort of narrow communities of people who shared a particular chronic illness or a particular set of chronic illnesses and, you know, would just sort of share things that had worked for them, share doctors who had succeeded for them and so on. And that always seemed to me a much more healthy and productive source of outside the mainstream information than the 
broader realm of social media where it's a much, you know, it's just a vaster landscape and, you know, it's, it's not a sort of discrete community. It's here comes everybody. And, you know, it's sort of people, people having, you know, whatever the algorithm sends into their social media feeds as, you know, as their news diet and so on. And so to the extent that you could change the internet so that more people with Joe Rogan's impulses were getting their views about whether like ivermectin works from discrete communities rather than the, the you know, the, their slice of Facebook or Twitter, I tend to think that might be a little better. And maybe that's a case for, you know, breaking up big companies. It's not clear to me how exactly that would, that would work. Um, I, I feel like something that sort of weakens weakens the way that these that these entities essentially deliver information without having a newspaper's responsibility over it would be a good thing. But I'd rather weaken them than keep them as they are and just have, you know, sort of Amy Klobuchar appointing the censors, I guess. And maybe that distinction doesn't work, but that's sort of where where I am right now. I want a weaker Facebook and more people off Facebook. And, you know, if they're sick and trying to get better, literally on a, you know, 200 person message board instead. Why not Facebook groups? Well, maybe it's Facebook. Yeah. Maybe it's face. I, I mean, let me, let me be perfectly honest. I yeah. don't use Facebook. <laughs> so <laughs> so you're having be, trouble describing this. To, to be completely honest with you, this is the ultimate pundits confession. I, yes, I use, I use Twitter. My, my primary experience of social media is, um, is Twitter. And so to the extent that I am seeing how, you know, what seems like bad information spreads, I'm seeing it happen on Twitter, on Twitter rather than on Facebook. And obviously there are within Facebook sort of discrete groups and, and communities that function like message boards. Yes, that's absolutely true. Right. But Sagar, I'm glad you brought that up though, because that gets to the January 6th controversy because the argument around Facebook is a lot of the January 6th organizing supposedly, um, I said supposedly in a skeptical way, like a lot of January 6th organizing happened in Facebook groups. So a lot of the critique of Facebook is they have these unpoliced Facebook groups. So even this, Ross, you're just, then this isn't your topic area. So I'm not expecting the perfect articulation of this, but you're getting at the tension of the issue, which is to Sagar's point, Okay, you think Facebook is too big? Facebook should encourage people, as Mark Zuckerberg did, to migrate away from the big news feed and start congregating in these smaller groups on the platform. However, when that congregation also coincides with election fraud allegations, right. you have a broader – so the, Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> is screwed, is the TLDR of what we're basically saying, trying to keep all Well, he's as screwed tensions. as an incredibly powerful man worth billions of dollars can be, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's – you treat he's, Facebook he's, as a project, as a as a how do you have these set of issues in front of you and how do you weave your way in and out of them? That seems to be a near impossible task. That is a better way of articulating what I just meant. Yes. No, and I, I think it is it there is there is no structure of the core problem that I tried to identify earlier in our conversation, where people feel like they're either all in for official knowledge or all in for the conspiracy theory. There, there, may, there is not some perfect iteration of social media that will do away with that fundamental. It's just a strong psychological tendency. It's like, and you see it again, you see it palpably 
in the world of chronic illness, where once someone has had one experience that shatters their faith in the system, it's just so easy for them to just sort of drift ever deeper into conspiracy land, right? And that that is true in with medical stuff. And it's true in politics as well, right? Where like, you know, you have a guy like Michael Schur, who you guys, you know, were probably too young to remember when he was this, you know, ex-CIA guy writing articles for the Atlantic, sort of blasting how we'd handled the, you know, the aftermath of 9-11. And, you know, he's sort of you he he has he's a guy who sort of has his faith shattered in the national his faith in the national security establishment shattered and 20 years later he's a QAnon guy i was gonna right? say is that the QAnon guy it's this yeah. guy <laughs> fun, fun fact so uh for audience note i i know this because he wrote a a book during the like worst part of the iraq war about how the u.s had fundamentally screwed up his relationship with Islam. And the reason why I thought of him recently is we had Peter Bergen on and Osama bin Laden actually really enjoyed the book he wrote about the US um, and Islam. It was, it was one of the books that was found um, with him in, in the compound. So to, to realize that this was a person who is writing these mainstream things um, and then 15 years later is a crazy QAnon person um, was, was really shocking. But yeah, I think that's a really astute point. Right. No, I mean, I was at the Atlantic. We were, I was a young, I was, you know, 24, 25. And he was like the guy we were publishing as this sort of, you know, clearly right wing in certain of his impulses, but sort of like Jim Webb, right, in his Senate yeah. campaign, this certain kind of right wing nationalist critique of the Bush administration fit pretty well with the center left's critique of the Bush administration. So he was sort of this outsider guru and he just let the outsiderness carry carry him off. And, you know, I mean, I think, look, I think there are people who will read, you know, will read my own book and probably think, well, you know, Ross let the outsiderness carry him off too much with, <laughs> with chronic illness, right? Like it's all, you know, ev everyone has their own definition of what kind of outsiderness goes too far. Um, but it is fundamentally, I think, this psychological problem where you have to, you have to be capable of holding in your mind, you know, a certain respect for the establishment and a certain skepticism of it at the same time. So for my last bit here, Ross, we have had an audience member who's been pushing us to have an episode on the secularization of American society. And we can't quite find the right guest and topic to discuss that through. But I've really appreciated, this is basically in the middle of your book, your discourse around your thoughts on on faith and why people and, and and even just the challenges that chronic illness plays for one's belief and in, in, in basically anything so this is sort of ham-fisted but would just love to close with just a bit of your thoughts on you had this i think the good quote i'll bring up is you had this you, you pointed out that it's somewhat surprising that people think that the existence of suffering in the modern world is is proof for the lack of existence of God. When if you think about it for a second, suffering at a pure level has been collapsing over you know the past five hundred years or so. So there's there's just a lot there, but I would just love your broad your your broad thoughts on the topic. Sure. So this, I mean, I'm you know we we can 
I've got a lot to say about secularization. So if you need me to come back at some point, guys, I'm really, really happy to think do you're, it. You think you're um, going to have to stop back. Um, but, but, but on that particular point, yeah. So I have this, this working theory. I had this theory before I got sick and I think it was sort of confirmed it sort of in my own experience, right. Is that basically, yeah, as, as suffering diminishes overall, the argument that suffering proves that God isn't good and or he doesn't exist somehow gets stronger. And I think part of that is that suffering doesn't go away, right? You know, we, we have not done away with suffering, but by making it less common or less immediate for a lot of people, it seems more outrageous when it happens, right? Like it's more sort of, it's more of like this this offense against your sense of what is supposed to be going on in the world. If you have this baseline where you expect people, everyone's going to be healthy and live to be 85 or 95 and no one's going to have kids die in infancy and everyone's going to take pen penicillin and, you know, and take vaccines and not have childhood illnesses, all of these things. And, the, you know, these are huge achievements, huge achievements, right? The world was not better when you know half of kids were dying in the first in the first two years of life, um, but in but in that world, I think people had you know an understanding of suffering as something that is really just just part of the human condition, right? It's just something you have to deal with, you have to cope with psychologically, spiritually, morally, and so on. And in this world, I think we don't have that sense. We have more of a sense of suffering as either something that's associated with these unique eruptions of evil, like the Nazis and the Holocaust, or something that like happens, you know, it happens to good people and it's so unfair and, you know, how could God allow this and so on. Um, but then when you're inside suffering itself, I mean, it still feels unfair. Like I definitely had that totally late modern reaction where it's like, there's been some kind of bureaucratic mix up here. <laughs> Right? Somebody, somebody gave me the suffering passport <laughs> instead of the, you know, the one I was supposed to get. Like you definitely, I definitely had that feeling of personal outrage. But yeah. then once you're in it, right, like not for, you know, not for any reason that proves anything theologically, but just because of what you need, the the importance of a belief in God or some general spiritual belief in meaning and purpose and structure in the universe, that belief is really important to getting through suffering. Really important. Like the sense that this is for something, that you're being tested, that this is part of a story that, you know, can still have a happy ending, even if you lose five or 10 or 20 years of your life to some kind of serious illness. All of that I found tremendously psychologically helpful. And I, you know, I quote Jesse, the body Ventura, the, you know, great, great theologian and noted philosopher, <laughs> right. Who, you know, had this governor of said, Minnesota, governor of Minnesota, his, former be, be professional give wrestler, us, give us credentials. <laughs> star of predator and other excellent motion pictures. Um, you know, he, he was a proud atheist and he said something like, you know, religion is a crutch for weak, for weak people, uh, probably in like a playboy interview or something. And, you know, before I got sick, I would have disputed that I would have argued with it and said, Oh, you know, this is a radical simplification and so on. But, you know, when you're sick, of course, it's a crutch. It's absolutely a crutch. And you you lean on it. And not in a way that like is sort of sort of uh, naive, right? Like it, to suffer is to realize that if God exists, he is certainly 
you know, willing to allow things that seem incredibly awful and unfair to happen to you, right? So it does, it makes you maybe fear God first more than you love him. But the belief that, yeah, that sort of God is there in some sense, even if he's not responding in the worst of your agonies is really, really important. And then there's stuff, you know, just as the book has weird stuff about medical experiments and the fringes of the fringes of medical treatment. There's also some stuff about, um, you know, not like wild supernatural angels descending supernatural experience, but some weird things that happened to me in the course of begging and pleading with God for help that, you know, felt not like, it's not like healing. It's not transformation. It's more like, well, sometimes it feels like God is sort of winking <laughs> at you. Like there's sort of, there's sort of that, that sense. And that's, I, I guess that's what I'll, what I'll, if we're ending, that's what I'll end with. Right. Is that, you know, this is a, this is a, a, a harrowing story that I'm telling and I'm telling it in part to just try and help other people who go through similar things to know that they're not alone, but there's also a certain kind of comedy in it that you can see better as you start to get a little better. There's ridiculous things that happen to you and totally just these sort of bizarre places that you end up. Um, and seen from a certain distance, you know, even in suffering, there is a, you know, there's a comedic and absurd element to human existence that, especially for people in our profession where we're, you know, required to be super serious about the fate of American democracy all the time, having that sense of the, you know, the, 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 the hint of laughter behind the universe, I think is really important and uh, useful as well. That's really well said. Um, we promised that was the last thing, but here's the actual last thing. People may not know this, but Ross is also a great film critic. Uh, Dune, what are your takes? Excited for Dune 2? What did you think of Dune 1? Lay it all out. <laughs> Dune, Dune is good. I mean, okay. let's, there's, there's no point in denying it. Um, <laughs> I, I saw it yesterday. It was, you know, I'm not sure when this will air, but it was publication day for the book. So I recorded podcasts in the morning and treated myself to Dune in the afternoon, which you can do now that the traditional book tour of travel has been killed off That's probably right. forever by COVID. You can just go to the movies and it's really good. Denise Villeneuve, really, really a really good director. I, I have, so my points of I'm still not completely show, sold on Timothée Chalamet. Uh, in there's a you know a moment. I think he's he's better than I thought in the lead role. There is a moment, a couple moments late in the movie when he is required to demonstrate physical prowess. I thought where, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> as I expected. So have you guys seen it? Yes. yes. Yeah. We both. Yeah. Saw it. yeah. So yeah. I was just not the physical prowess element. He just needs. 20 more pounds he of muscle. He needs to bulk up a little bit. I yeah, agree. He, need, he, yeah. need, he needed, he, I mean, they sort of joke about how skinny he is, which is fine at the start because he's supposed to be callow, but like he needs to be able to fight a grown man and kill him. And I'm not, I was not persuaded by that part. Um, and I would have, as a nerd, I thought the movie should have been 15 minutes longer and given us like a little more of the sort of, you know, Arrakis politics and galactic politics in the early going um, before the sort of pivot to slam bang action midway through. Um, and the sequel, you know, the, the second half of the novel is not quite as good as the first half, I think, in certain ways. So I'll be in. But I think there are things you can do. There's a bunch of things that happen off stage in the novel such a weird novel, so brilliant, but also so weird that you would just put on stage in the, 
in the adaptation that I think will right. work will work pretty well. Like people die, major characters die off stage, and you're like, maybe you should have showed that, Frank Herbert. So I'm sure <laughs> Villeneuve will will show it. Um, so I'm optimistic, but not sort of measured optimism for for the second half. But I do want the like extra 15 minute uh, director's cut, and you do need to see it in theaters. Like the the sort of visual and soundscape elements, like it is. You know, it's a movie built to overawe you on the big screen. And I'm debating whether to show it to my wife, who's sort of interested, but definitely not a Dune person, whether we should watch it on HBO or whether I need to figure out a way to get a babysitter and drag her, drag her to the theater. Do the theater. Um, I think it's worth it. Um, yeah. 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 yeah I, Ross, that is, I, I think that is a straightforwardly accurate take there. There was, there was two minutes to explain the importance of water beyond just, you know, pouring water on, on trees. Um, there's, there's, cause I think the thing that's interesting here, um, just to close this out is basically, it depends what they're trying to do with Dune. So if they're trying to turn Dune into, they're going to do, you know, Dune Messiah and children are doing, which, which I'm skeptical of. Given that if things if you if you think Dune is weird, oh my wait god, wait till you like yeah. wait wait wait. Not gonna give spoilers, but it just gets a hundred times weirder. I I have never been able to get through the sequels. Like I respect hmm. the mythology and the people who are completists, but I I really think of Dune as a standalone work of art, basically. Huh. That well, is I'm the excited. Take. I think they can backfill. <laughs> I think they can backfill some of the mythology and more. In the second one, like you were talking about, and that'll make it a little bit easier to understand. But as an entry well, movie, I'm, I mean, yeah, and I'm yeah. excited. I I want like uh, Count Fenring, you know, the the mm-hmm. the deadly eunuch uh, and his and his wife. Like, there's you know, there there's some great there's some great characters who have who have yet to be yet to be unveiled. Um, so uh, yeah. Now it's 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 good stuff. I would also say people. I said this in my national review movie review, but before you should see Dune, you should see it four times. People should also go see the Last Duel, the Adam Driver, um, Ben Affleck, Matt, uh, Matt Damon. Damon medieval <laughs> France movie, which is dying at the box office. Is it and good? Yes, it's very yeah, good. Yeah. I'll and it's, watch and, it. Okay. And it's like the my my one general doubt about Dune is that. You know, the problem with Hollywood is that it's just all Marvel movies, right? It's all just sort of franchise movies as far as the eye can see. And Villeneuve's Dune, like Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, is like the highest version, highest art version of that. Um, but it would still be good to have some like, you know, a movies that aren't science fiction epics from time to time. And so The Last Duel is that kind of movie. It's worth seeing. So I'm I'm telling Dune fanboys that they All should right. be the last duel too. And <laughs> Ben Affleck is this is like a classic Ben Affleck douchebag douchebag character. And it's it's if you appreciate Affleck's early douchebag work, um, you will appreciate this as well. We'll leave the mid two thousands aside. You know, if you're looking for that renaissance, that nineties, right yeah, the Ben Affleck renaissance. <laughs> well, that was the peak of Western civilization, guys. The year Goodwill Hunting came out. Nothing, nothing has ever gotten. It's it's been all downhill since then. <laughs> Well, Ross, All right, Ross, that was, we appreciate this was, your time. The, this was the biggest tangent we've ever done. Huge yeah. accomplishment, but it's actually a very worthy tangent because we have a bit of the audience that freaks out whenever they see Dune in my background there, so they will appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for joining. Can you just shout out the book real quick um, and everything people should go check out? 
just shout. So the book is uh, The Deep Places, uh, a memoir of illness and discovery. Um, you know, if you don't like pretentious subtitles, don't be put off. It's available wherever books are sold. I did read it. So if you've enjoyed my uh, <clears throat> my intonations in this interview, you can get the audiobook. Um, and it's only 200 pages long. And I'm told that it's kind of a page turner. So, you know, don't don't be don't be put off by the absolutely harrowing material. It'll be a quick read. <laughs> All right. It's, uh, <laughs> we, we'll have the link down there in the description. Thank you, Ross. We really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, guys. Thanks, man. Reminder, Substack, subscription, bookshop, book purchases, and of course, huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. We'll see you next time.